Released in 1985, Elam Klimov's Come and See follows Flioran, a 14-year-old boy who ages 50 years over the course of four days. Sounds like science fiction, but given that Klimov's film, adapted from the book I Am From The Fiery Village, written by Elas Adamovich, Jan Cabril and Vladimir Kolesnik, three survivors of Nazi genocide, you can understand how the carnage and trauma could age anyone, especially an innocent youth. Hitler invaded Russia 78 years ago next Saturday, on June the 22nd, 1941. Operation Barbarossa then opened up a vicious 2,400-kilometre front, stretching from Stalingrad in the north all the way to the Sea of Azov in the south, unleashing a scale of death and destruction the world had never seen. Little wonder, upon the launch, one which is to this day still the single largest military operation in history, Hitler had claimed I have the right to destroy millions of people of a lower race who breed like worms. Here is the mass murderer informing his officials about the Wehrmacht success in Stalingrad and how, as of November the 9th, 1942, the city was completely under German control. Of course, that was not true, since Stalin's counteroffensive had all but encircled the city. Vor allem aber, sie kämpfen immer am gleichen Platz. Hier und da sagen sie dann bescheiden, nach 14 Tagen, wir haben eine Stadt evakuiert. Aber im Allgemeinen kämpfen sie seit dem 22. Juni am gleichen Platz immer erfolgreich. Immer werden wir zurückgeschlagen und sind bei diesem fortgesetzten Zurückschlagen ist langsam bis zum Kaukasus gekommen. For almost a century now, Russia has had a conflicted relationship with its own history. No matter the leader, he is always rewriting the past. Yet, while Stalin quickly called on filmmakers to bolster the people's morale, Hollywood was also producing pro-Soviet pictures. Ironic, not just because the studios were suddenly portraying communists as heroes, but because when the Nazis pushed through Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Georgia, Moldova and the Ukraine, they were initially greeted by much of the local populations as liberators from the communist despot. Nevertheless, The North Star, produced by Sam Goldwyn, directed by Lewis Milestone and starring Anne Baxter, Dana Andrews and Walter Houston, takes place in the Ukraine where a group of young friends form a guerrilla unit when their village is raised to the ground by the invading army. Commander Petrov of the 12th Border Cavalry speaking to the border villages. The fascist armies of the German Reich invaded the Soviet Union this morning. I will repeat. The German armies crossed the border of the Soviet Union this morning. The attack was made with unprecedented fury. But our land will be defended with a fury the fascist armies have never known. To the border villages. Salute, Salute comrade. The war has come. There have since been numerous Soviet and American productions set along the Eastern Front. The vast majority jingoistic and shallow. However, there have been exceptional films. Mikhail Kalatasov's The Cranes Are Flying from 1957. Two years later, Grigory Chukre's Ballad of a Soldier. Three years after that, Andrei Tarkovsky's Ivan's Childhood. Then in 1971, Alexei German's Trial on the Road. The next year, Stanislav Rostotsky's Oscar-nominated The Dawn's Here Are Quiet. And five years after that, The Ascent, directed by Larissa Shapitko. Shapitko's film is important for several reasons. 
not least because she dared to depict the Belarusian resistance as being led by a Jesus-like figure with the partisans akin to his disciples. By contrast, that same year saw Sam Peckinpah's very violent and confused Cross of Iron. I will make this my final order to you. You will search out and contact all of these um, better people, you call them? And together, you will take on the responsibility that goes with survival. Now, you must leave. Shapitko was killed in a car crash in 1979, but six years later, her husband, Alam Klimov, delivered his own statement on what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War. Come and See, widely considered to be the greatest war picture ever made, takes place in 1943, with Florian played by first-time actor Alexei Kavchenko, leading his mother and young sisters to eagerly join Belarusia's resistance. By the next morning, Florian's family and entire village have been murdered. And over the next 72 pummeling hours, he is exposed to depravities that savagely etch into his face, rendering him at times deaf, mute and catatonic. But what we come to see in Florian is barely a mirror of the trauma experienced in his homeland. While the Soviet territories suffered in excess of 25 million deaths, it was in Belarusia where the suffering was most catastrophic. Almost one quarter of the population were killed. The dialogue in Klimov's film is almost exclusively in Belarus, so for the purposes of this podcast, I'll use clips from the version dubbed into English. They're all degenerates. All of them should be killed. I wasn't on their side, not on the German side. No, I never was. We're not Germans. We never... Men, who are you? You filthy slime! They made us do it. It's not our fault. They made us do it. We're not Germans. Badly voiced as the dubbing is, there is a very good reason to listen to Klimov's film. Victor Moore's highly influential sound mix. Consider this sequence where Florian temporarily loses his hearing as a result of the Luftwaffe's bombing raid. Now consider the beach sequence from Saving Private Ryan. Steven Spielberg's film was not the first American production to deploy such a subjective sound distortion. Darren Aronofsky did the same thing in his debut feature Pi, and James Mangold did it earlier with his crime drama Copland. But since Saving Private Ryan, a plethora of directors have followed suit. Peter Weir with Master and Commander, Guillermo del Toro and Hellboy, Alfonso Cuaron has used it twice in Children of Men and Gravity, as has Catherine Bigelow in The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. But Victor Moore's sound design is not limited to distorting what we might expect to hear. Running over, under and through those sounds is an original score composed by Oleg Yanchenko. Yanchenko's score dispenses with formal rhythm, opting instead for a nebulous, almost unstructured tempo. Compounding that, Klimov then layers in a disorientating blend of diegetic and objective sounds. Noises that someone who has the full faculty of hearing would hear, 
and then diegetic but subjective sounds, what someone whose hearing has been damaged might hear, and then, with a startling stroke, imagined sounds, but not sounds imagined by Fluoran and his compatriots. I mean, how else can we explain the sudden surge of Johann Strauss Jr.'s tales from the Vienna woods? Could young Florian, a peasant living in remote Belarusia, be so familiar with Strauss's music that it would replay from memory in his head? Perhaps, but probably not. On the other hand, it is possible that the approaching Wehrmacht are blasting the Waltz King's famous melody on their tannoy, just like the way the Airborne Division did with Wagner's Valkyrie in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Come and see, the Nazis are not playing Strauss. They are blaring out instructions for the local inhabitants to gather by the village barn. Inhabitants of the village, listen. Everybody of the village, listen. You all hear this. You all take children and your papers go to village fair. No, Strauss is there because Klimov wants to juxtapose it with the slaughter. But it is more than just ironic. It is phantasmagorical a haunting and chilling contradiction of human existence. On the one hand, high culture, and on the other, a killing machine. And who knows from one day to the next what we're going to get. Spielberg adopted the same idea in Schindler's List, when during the ghetto massacre, two stormtroopers catch their breath as one of their colleagues plays a piano. In the wake of Larissa Shapitko's death, Klimov decided to continue the subject she had examined in The Ascent. Klimov initially wanted to call his film Kill Hitler, but for various reasons, not least of which was the Kremlin's continued conflicted relationship with history, the project was delayed for seven years. By the time it finally went into production, Klimov had resurrected the religious theme of his late wife's film and renamed his script Come and See, the new title coming from chapter 6 of the Book of Revelations by St. John the Divine. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of its seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. Clearly then, Klimov is using the film to bear witness to history, and that means that looking takes on a meaning far beyond it just being a verb. Klimov was not satisfied with just showing unthrottled depravity. He wanted to comment on the moral value of looking itself. Which explains why, time and again, he and cinematographer Alexei Rodinov compose their frame so that Florian looks directly into the lens. In the hands of lesser filmmakers, such a technique would break the fourth wall 
and thus draw attention to the artifice of what we are seeing. And indeed, we have seen the technique before. Hitchcock did it in Psycho, Bergman continued it in Persona, and Kubrick used it repeatedly in 2001, A Clockwork Orange, The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. You little scumbag! I got your name! I got your ass! You will not laugh! You will not cry! You will learn by the numbers! I will teach you! Now get up! Get on your feet! Come and see covers Operation Cottbus, the Nazi rampage led by the notoriously depraved Derlevanger Brigade. Named after its leader, Oscar Derlevanger, a convicted murderer and child rapist, the brigade was composed of similar criminals. Murderers, rapists and arsonists, all of whom, having received amnesties from the SS, were expected to die fighting. So, amid the carnage, Fleurin's look is, in the religious sense, apocalyptic, revelatory. His gaze is so intense, it serves as a petrified mirror, reflecting back to us the shadow surely cast across our faces as we look on, as helpless as Florian is. The slaughter culminates with the youth, along with the inhabitants of the village, being crammed into a barn, which is then set alight. Florian manages to scramble out, but is then forced to watch, as everyone inside is burned to death. As a caption at the end of the film tells us, 628 Belarusian villages suffered a similar fate. While not the only film to do so, another thing that sets Klimas' film apart from almost all other war films is that it is told from the point of view of a child. Other examples would be Roberto Rossellini's Germany Year Zero, René Clément's Forbidden Games, Tarkovsky's Ivan's Childhood, Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, John Borman's Hope and Glory, Louis Malle's Au revoir les enfants, and most recently, Carrie Fukunaga's Beasts of No Nation. Better look me in the eyes, motherfucker. Who wants to fight? Aha. I'm only taking the brave. I'm not taking the scary. I'm not taking no girls. Are you ready to fight? Yes, sir. Are you ready to fight? Yes, sir. It seems initially that placing Florian at the centre of the film is to highlight the loss of innocence. But in the film's final sequence, such innocence is questioned. Throughout the film, Klimov used long, uninterrupted takes, but at the end, he shifted gear into a montage sequence. Florin comes across a photograph of Hitler, and he unloads his fury, firing repeatedly at the image. Klimov then runs archive footage, running it in reverse so history goes backwards, back through the war, back to the invasion, and earlier, into the 30s, 20s, and finally to an image of Hitler as a baby. Seeing the infant, Florin stops as if asking if we were to have met Adolf Hitler as a child, knowing how history would unfold, would we kill him? And that brings me to the film's single flaw. For all of Klimov's dexterity, the question is so familiar as to be banal, if not meaningless. It suggests that if Hitler were removed from history, World War II would never have happened, which suggests the future is predetermined but nothing is ever inevitable. To believe otherwise is not only to deny personal choice, but more importantly, refute personal responsibility. I didn't commit that crime. History did. Just as the Bolshevik Revolution was the result of the masses rising up, so too did Hitler come to power because the overwhelming majority of German people supported him. So the question should not be 
would you kill Hitler as a child, but rather, what is it in human nature that we support bullies and give them our power to become tyrants? Why do we willingly surrender our sovereignty to a group of individuals, knowing that they will abuse the power we give them and thus unleash our worst demons?